Well, good evening. Good to see you all here tonight. Welcome. Good to have you here. We are continuing on from last week in basic doctrinal studies, uh, which was my name for it years ago. And then uh, when Dan Craw crafted this class, he wanted to call it uh, something different. He wanted to call it uh, foundations for, what did he call it? A biblical foundation for the Christian life. Yeah, that's the title he gave to it. Um, but then uh, he, the Lord sent him to Corpus Christi, and he's been, uh, I've been filling in for him. <laughs> and so now I, uh, I struggle to remember what he called this class. I still call it Basic Doctrinal Studies. And so uh, we've been going through category by category. By the way, it is available on the website uh, from the previous time when we went through, so you have an opportunity if you want to listen to those classes as well. Um, Hopefully it's better this time through as <laughs> uh, we teaching it again and, and get to build upon what we've previously studied, what we've previously learned. Uh, but you can get the uh, notebook. It's in the hallway. You can get a PDF document from the uh, website as well. And uh, we appreciate that. I'm going to open this up with a word of prayer, and then we're going to return to where we are talking about the believer's struggle, what I've titled the doctrine of agonology. If it sounds painful, uh, it's supposed to. Uh, agony is, uh, it is what it is. So let's open the word of prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege and blessing that we have to assemble together tonight. And Father, I thank you for the blessings you've provided for us in your Son, based on his finished work and based upon the, uh, the magnified glory of our present uh, circumstances. Father, we, we operate here in the church age. We're so thankful for the position possessions that we have in Christ, for the great privilege that it is for us to be uh, a part of the royal family to be uh, united together through baptism into the body of your Son. And so, Father, we're delighted this evening once again that we have the blessing to study to show ourselves approved. Uh, Father, each one of us with the permanent indwelling of God the Holy Spirit, I thank you, Father, that the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. And we call upon Him tonight to guide our teaching, to uh, lead us in, uh, in this study. And I do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, the doctrine of agonology. And by the way, this is uh, a fair way through. Uh, we've already covered bibliology, the doctrine of the Bible. Uh, theology, that is theology proper, the person and work of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, anthropology, the doctrine of man. Uh, it's unlike any anthropology course you might have had in a secular uh, university. Uh, this is biblical anthropology that describes us uh, as made in the image of God, but fallen in the lost estate of Adam and in need of a Savior. Uh, and uh, the accurate biblical view of humanity as it's presented there, including, by the way, the doctrine of sin and what sin is and why we need a Savior in, uh, in those applications. Very unpopular in our generation, which wants to define sin away. Uh, soteriology, uh, how we are, we are saved. Uh, from our sin issue and how we are reconciled to the Father instead of our lost estate in Adam. Uh, peripatology, where we've been the last few weeks in peripatology and thelematology. Uh, peripateo is the Greek verb that means to walk. And so under peripatology, we study the doctrine of the believer's walk, what it is that we're expected to do in the, in the Christian way of life, that we're not just saved and we're waiting for, to go to heaven when we die. In the meantime, while we are believers in Christ, what is expected of us and how do we walk in the word of God, in the fellowship, in the light, according to uh, his will and all the applications there. 
Um, finally, last week we were dealing, the last couple of weeks we've been dealing with thelematology, which comes from thelema, uh, which is the Greek word for will or desire, the will of God. By the way, you can get in trouble if you Google that, because there's some cults out there and some other groups that use thelema as a part of their, um, operations as a part of their uh, code. So just have some discernment, know what you're reading, and uh, realize if you Google Philema that you may end up with uh, some strange things, all right? Likewise, if you Google uh, Melchizedek priesthood, don't be shocked and surprised if you end up on some Mormon websites and some things there. So just know uh, know what you're doing when you're Googling, and, uh, and be careful <laughs> in any event. Uh, that's thelematology, the will of God. God has a will, and we want our will to be his will. And if ours is not, then we need to change ours, and we need to make the adjustments so that we keep ourselves in the, uh, the will of God. There's more to that that I really would love to expand, and perhaps uh, not tonight and not in this class, but beyond basics in the will of God, I would love to be able to expand to an intermediate study and into an advanced study related to... Um, uh, components of the will of God and how we discern it and how we categorize certain things, including his directive will, his permissive will, his uh, overruling will, his uh, discretionary will that I think gets abused by a lot of folks, the discretionary will of God, whereby we have the freedom in Christ to live our abundant life and to uh, to make the choices ourselves based on what we desire. There's no right answer or wrong answer uh, in that he leaves it in our discretion to apply wisdom, to apply biblical norms and standards. And so you're neither the better if you do nor the worse if you don't kind of application in the things that are of the discretionary will of God. And I think that those studies become useful too because like I say, they get abused in, uh, in a lot of applications today. In fact, I think there's a tendency, I've, fa- I've encountered it face to face, so I know it's out there, um, whereby people want to deny a directive will for so many things and just say, well, it's whatever you want to do. And that is not the case, uh, that God does have a directive will. And, and in terms of uh, the person I marry or the church I pastor or so many things in terms of God's will uh, that are not just left to me to do whatever I want to do, whatever's right in my own eyes. That's not, that's not the case. And so um, stay tuned for that. I, I, I would like to come back and, and readdress this down the road in, in, a, in a more concentrated fashion. But not tonight. Tonight we're moving on to uh, agonology. And did we cover? Did we finish agonology last week? How far did we get with this? I didn't mark where we stopped. Otherwise, then we got boolology. Um, we didn't get very far. Okay. Well, then I'll just take it right from the top again and we'll take it from there. The doctrine of the struggle. Agonizomai uh, is the Greek verb. And it speaks of, of that struggle. And it can be uh, used in a military context, in warfare. It can be used in an athletic context, in uh, sporting events, uh, but we do have a struggle. And that might come as a shock for a lot of folks. In fact, in some cases, they were sold a bill of goods when they were evangelized, that all they need to do is just get Jesus, and, 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 and then all their problems go away. And then they have a happy marriage, and they have a great job, and they have all this kind of money, and everything goes great as soon as you get saved. And, and maybe they were sold that bill of goods. Maybe you were sold that bill of goods, uh, depending on who evangelized you, I and mean, when that might have happened. Um, but it doesn't take long, and a new believer finds out that, uh, that everything's not millennial. We're not in the millennium yet. That we're in the church age still, and there's conflict. And, and we should expect that. 
Uh, don't think it's a strange thing at the various temptations and the various struggles that, that you're being hit with. It's very normal to have this kind of struggle. And we want to understand that. I think it's part of basics. I want to teach a brand new believer this on day one because it's the brand new believer who's going to be very vulnerable. And, uh, and he's going to be attacked uh, right off the bat. His old associates are going to come alongside and, and uh, try to derail him in that, in that newfound faith. So the new believer must be immediately oriented to the battlefield conditions of the angelic conflict. You know, even before Adam and Eve, before there was humanity, there was angelity. And the angels had their stewardship, and a third of the angels rebelled, and there was warfare. And that conflict continues to this day. That conflict is now a proxy war. It's carried out in the human realm uh, by virtue of the fallen angels and their forces and and God, of course, uh, who watches over us. And so uh, we have battlefield conditions in the angelic conflict. And it's sad to me how many um, commentaries and pastors, it just seems like the whole angelic scope of teaching is being diminished these days. It seemed like if I go back 40 years, I find a lot of, a lot of faithful men are teaching, I think, accurately in Genesis 6 and on the, the Nephilim there and, and, or on Isaiah 14 and the five I wills of Satan or Ezekiel 28. It just seems like there are certain passages of Scripture that if you're in a Christian bookstore, you can pull the commentary off the shelf and look and, and spotlight very quickly, oh, they're hiding from angelic issues or they're denying angelic issues or they're, they're, they're omitting what I think is, is crucial to understand. So we need to recognize what the battlefield conditions are in, in the angelic conflict. The youngest and weakest of any species is the most vulnerable to hostile predators. So it is with the praying enemies of Jesus Christ. You know, and I illustrated last week, I talked about the, the National Geographic Channel or, or Discovery or any of those. Um, they're, they're, for the most part, they're evolutionist-minded and they're, they're pretty secular and, and horrible. But still, you get a chance to watch uh, you know, a lion attack a wildebeest and it's kind of fun. Or to watch Shark Week every year and things like that. I, I really get into those things. But you notice in the, in the, in the survival of the fittest, in the, in the rough fallen world that we have, those little animals uh, are, are, get picked off. You know, the weak ones at the back of the herd and the, and the sick ones and so forth. And that's the nature of this fallen world. And uh, so too in the Christian way of life. And so we have enemies, we have adversaries, and uh, we, we need to use our armor, we need to use our weaponry to, uh, to deal with these things. So a baby believer without armor or weapons and the training to use them is a very attractive target. The world, the flesh, and the devil are hostile predators against born-again believers in Jesus Christ. And so we need to teach basics. We need to orient babies in how to use their armor and how to be on the alert and how to deal with this struggle. Um, important principles from Luke 6.40. A disciple is not above his master. Get this uh, more readable here. A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after he's been fully trained will be like his teacher. You know, and who are we? Why do we think that if he faced struggle that somehow we're not going to face this struggle? Uh, being in agony, he was praying very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. You know, this is the nature of, of, of our Savior, the night in which he was betrayed as he was preparing for, mentally, uh, spiritually, he was preparing for the maximum obedience to the will of God the Father, even while the soldiers were on the way. So we must likewise do the same. We're going to face our own struggles and we need to, uh, to recognize that. John 15, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And you know, this is not an if, maybe so. This is, this is going to happen right? If, uh, and it will. 
uh, if you were of the world, and you're not, but if you were, the world would love its own. Uh, but because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. And so don't be surprised if the, the buddies you used to run with back when you were unsaved, now they're hostile to you because you've departed from that realm of darkness. Now you name the name of Christ. Now you walk in the light. And in some cases, the attack's going to come pretty pretty fierce. And, um, you know, Second Peter talks about this. The scripture addresses this. And um, we, need to, we need to just know it on day one. And let a brand new believer know this. Say, by the way, <laughs> it's like in the NFL or some sports team, you know, you just changed jerseys. And uh, now you're on the other side. And so when you're face-to-face with your old teammates, you're not teammates anymore. And they will, they will tackle you as far as the football analogy goes. All right, agony. Think agony. And the Greek word agon. If you want to uh, look this up on your Strong's Concordance, it's number 73. We also have agonia. We've got the noun agonia, which is Strong's number 74. And then the verb, agonizomai, Strong's number 75. And, and like agonizomai, almost because it sounds like agonize, oh my, right, in English. Agonize, oh my. And that's, uh, that's what we're going to go through. We're going to agonize. So don't say, oh my, just get ready for it and, uh, and thank him for it. For It's a privilege. It's a privilege to suffer even, uh, even as he suffered. Jesus promised us this. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. That's a promise. You will have tribulation. If you, if you don't have tribulation, I suspect something's very wrong. I suspect that uh, the adversary is quite pleased with, uh, with a non-productive, uh, wishy-washy kind of Christian walk, and so he deliberately tones down anything that might trip you up because he's happy to keep you as, as lazy and content and, and uh, ignorant as, as he possibly can. The believer who thinks they should somehow not have to experience such hardship is a believer who has no desire to truly know his Savior. You know, do you want to know Jesus? If you want to have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, it includes suffering. You know, it's that shared common experience. And it, there's a reason why it's called the fellowship of his sufferings. In uh, Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. And so we have there in Philippians 3.10, I, I think it's a, it's a beautiful description of, of one of our objectives in, in, in uh, the Christian way of life. We, we want to know this. And this is something that, that doesn't come in a classroom. It doesn't come through academic study. It comes, I mean, you need the academic study. You need the classroom. You better get your doctorate and get, the, get equipped. But fundamentally, this is something that you learn in the, uh, it's like, you know, you have a uh, classroom and then you have your lab. <laughs> and this is a lab course. Uh, the fellowship of his sufferings as you in, encounter this, as you experience this, this is uh, the, the practical lab work that in the, in the uh, Christian way of life. And so uh, if you want to somehow avoid this, um, what's, what's the objective there? Why? I mean, if, if the objective is to avoid hardship or because it's unpleasant, um, you know, okay, sure, it's unpleasant, but the cross was unpleasant. Good thing Jesus didn't have that attitude. He would have avoided the cross. Neither will they truly know victory. And if you're not tested, you don't know victory. What's that famous, there's a famous... Um, uh, Roosevelt quote, right? Teddy Roosevelt about the man that never enters into the arena. 
you know, and sure, he, he never knows the, the, the defeat. He never knows the, the sting of the defeat. But neither does he ever know the thrill of the victory. And uh, I think it's a Teddy Roosevelt quote. And um, boy, it just spells it right out there, doesn't it? And, and put it in the Christian way of life and the angelic conflict, I think it's very applicable in that regard. Okay, so go home and Google that. You can, <laughs> that's a safe one to Google. All right. Romans eight seventeen. If we are children, and we are, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. How, how powerful is that? <laughs> Old Testament could never dream of such a thing. Old Testament believers, Israel and their stewardship, they had inheritance, they had land grants, they had allotments based upon their tribe and their clan and their family and so forth. But the idea of being a fellow heir with Jesus Christ, to be a co-heir with the heir of all things, that is, that's just, it's infinitely mind-boggling to consider the, the blessings we have as we're baptized in union with Jesus Christ. If indeed, I like that, if indeed, from Romans eight seventeen, That is like a first-class condition on steroids. That is if, and it's true, and it's very true, and of course it's true. Why do you doubt such a thing? <laughs> if indeed we do suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. And, and, you know, the ultimate battlefield glories and the, and the awards and the medals and, the, and, and all of that that we get to throw at Jesus' feet. I don't know about you, I want to throw more at his feet than I know I'm going to be able to. I, I'm, I'm, I'm fearful that I'm going to have precious little to, to throw at his feet, see, because he's worth so much more. And, uh, and that I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared. And that's where too many brothers and sisters just fall short. They get wrapped up in the sufferings of this present time, and, and to them it's a price they don't want to pay. And, and how, how tragic is that? Because it's, it's such a little price to pay. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And uh, we have this mystery of godliness as it's presented here. Ah, there we go. Now I can scroll it. It is a trustworthy statement. If we died with him, and it's true, we will also live with him. If we endure, now keep this in mind, a lot of Christians don't. A lot fall short. We will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Think of the rewards you throw away. The reward that takes Jesus Christ to confess your name before the Father. And yet, a reward we may forsake if we deny him. And yet we can't lose salvation. We're clear on that. Okay? Even the biggest loser in the church age is still eternally secure in Christ. Because if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. We are in him, and, and it's impossible to lose our position in him and so as to lose our salvation. So the babe in Christ can draw great comfort. And this, this could be scary. You know, you got somebody that was just saved this morning, and you're telling them about the devil. You're telling them about the world and, and all this hostility and all these tribulations. Well, they should be comforted by all kinds of things. First of all, that promise in John 16 that, that in the world you will have tribulation also comes with a promise, but be of good courage, I've overcome the world. So don't sweat it. We're, we're going to win this thing, okay? Just hold on and watch what he does. Also realize that the battle is the Lord's. Don't try to engage in, in, your, in your own might. We sang it tonight. The arm of flesh will fail you. 
You dare not trust your own. So stand up and, and trust in Him and what He is doing. Also recognize um, God is, 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 is brilliant in what He does in crafting and tailoring our conflict and crafting and tailoring our testing. And that while we're babes, He's going to permit us to have the babe testing and then grow to adolescence and then grow to maturity. In each stage of our growth, God will be measuring out the testing that He permits us to go through. So uh, there is a hedge of protection that the sovereign, uh, the sovereign Lord designs for us on, on that basis. Uh-huh. In the second Timothy, are those all the same conditional? Um, are those all the same conditional? Possibly. Possibly not. But if they are the same, then they're used on a rhetorical basis. And so they can be a first-class condition assumed to be true for the sake of making the rhetorical point uh, agar, a hupamanen, a yes. They're all first class condition, all assumed to be true to make the argument that they're making. That is correct. Good question. All right. Uh, the hedge of protection in Job 1.10. Remember when Satan was trying to attack Job? He was frustrated. He was frustrated by a hedge. And uh, what I like in Job 1. Um, turn there if you would. Job chapter 1, and we'll, we'll spend some time in this. And, and uh, a lot of times I go way too quickly because I just assume everybody knows what I'm talking about. And uh, you know what happens when you assume, okay? So I don't want to do that. In Job chapter 1, I've got a fascinating story related to the angels and, and their role in patrolling the earth and observing and reporting. And we also find the role of Satan, who uh, intrudes upon what the elect angels are, are doing in their instruction and in their class. And so Job chapter 1 and verse 6, as we read this, uh, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So we see that whatever his rank was before he fell, he's no longer in this B'nai Ha'elohim category, the highest ranking of the sons of, of the angels are called the sons of God. Yeah, but he comes among them as if he still belonged there. And so the Lord says to Satan, from where do you come? And, and this gets repeated in chapter 2. It appears to be formulaic. It appears to be a ritual uh, that the elect angels were engaged in as they periodically report in. And, uh, and, and report on what they've observed and what they've learned. And so Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Okay? And uh, by the way, I have searched the Hebrew on this, and I, 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 I suspect there's a manuscript typo here. I think it should be Bob. I think his name is Bob. Um, but anyway, it's... I'm teasing. Um, he's known as Job, and, uh, and there you have it. Um, but this is God's praise. He is the most spiritually mature believer on the planet. He is the most spiritually mature believer on planet Earth in his generation. And, and keep in mind, I believe Noah's still alive. I believe Ham, Shem, and Japheth have to be still alive, even if Noah's not. We're in the centuries between Noah and uh, between the flood and Abraham is the setting here. Probably two generations pre-Abraham is the setting for this here in the in the patriarchal age, and so possibly Noah may not, because Noah only lived, 
you know, 300 years after the flood. But, um, but his sons outlived Abraham. And so they're still on the earth at this time, and yet Job is preeminent in his uh, intimacy with, with the Lord. And it's interesting, when Satan answers God here, he doesn't say, Job who? <laughs> he doesn't say, who are you talking about? Job, where? Where does he live? Who's this guy? He knows exactly who the Lord's talking about. He's been uh, a prime attack on Satan's part for some time now. Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him in his house and all that he has on every side? So how does Satan know that? How does Satan know that the hedge is on every side, that's in the front and the back and the left and the right and up and down? And he's, Because he's been checking it out. He's been poking, he's been prodding, he's been trying various attacks from every direction. And he can't get through. So this ought to be a comfort for us. But he makes a dare here. and He says, put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. And we find out what a false prophet Satan is because he's dead wrong on this. All right? he's, he's totally wrong on this prophecy or this prediction. So the Lord said, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. And so this study becomes vital for us, I think, as a foundational study in the angelic conflict. Recognize that everything Satan is allowed to do is just that. He's allowed to do that in the permissive will of God. But God sets the parameters. He, he gives permission, don't do this, do this, do this, but with these limitations, only go this far. <coughs> you can't touch him, for example. And so he goes out and he uh, does everything he can short of touching him, Right? Kills all his children, leaves his wife alive. Every other underhanded thing he can do to, to make things worse for Job. See, it would have been better, <laughs> I get in trouble when I say this, <clears throat> killing Job's wife would have been less bad than leaving her alive, as far as Satan's concerned, in testing Job. And so that's why he does this. Now, in this chapter, and then there's a follow-up. Chapter 2, it's, the, it's almost word for word the same comes back again. And of course, here's the end of the chapter. Job doesn't curse God to his face. Job worships. He arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell to the ground and worshiped. Naked I came from a mother's womb. Naked I shall return. Um, the Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so it's a tremendous victory for Job here. And, and we glean a lot in this chapter related to angelic conflict. And then we think, okay, End of story. He lived happily ever after. No, there's lots of chapters still to come. Chapter 2, what happens? Satan comes back again. And he's not giving up. We've got to learn this. If we have a victory today, don't get prideful. Because Satan's coming back tomorrow. Don't get prideful. The worst thing you could do is get prideful and think, oh, this is easy. Because remember, pride goes before a fall. And so again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And we don't know. It doesn't tell us how frequently this is. We don't know what the interval is. Do the angels, do they report uh, once a year, once a month? What are, you know, we don't know. But whatever it was, it was a predictable interval. It was a, a, uh, a designated time. And Satan also came from among them to present himself before the Lord. You can imagine like in the military, you presented yourself uh, each morning for uh, present for duty and, and, and so forth. And here they are presented before the Lord. Same question, same answer. Where have you come from? Have you considered my servant Job? 
Pay attention here, though, in verse 3. There is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. That, that declaration right there, I love that. That's beautiful in my eyes. Because this is God who still claims responsibility for what he permitted Satan to do. God still takes ownership of ruining him without cause. You incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Yahweh still claims ownership of this activity, even though he, he permitted Satan to do it. He, uh, God's not you know, washing his hands of this and saying, well, I didn't do it, you did it. No, God let him do it, set the parameters for doing it. This is on God, all right? And we should be tremendously comforted by that. Whatever the temptation is, when God permits it, just rest assured that God has permitted it in his wisdom. And he's permitted it for his purpose, to glorify Jesus Christ. And we should be thankful for that. Say, Lord, you permitted this. I don't like it, but you permitted it, all right? So I submit to it. Not my will, but thine be done. Father, show me uh, what I need to learn in this process as long as you permit it to continue. And uh, this becomes uh, a great uh, provision for us as well. Now, uh, Satan's going to whine and make excuses and say, well, yeah, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now, touch his bone and his flesh, he will curse you to your face. And so the false prophet's going to take another shot at it, <laughs> okay? Uh, he's already been proven wrong. Any false prophet should be stoned when a false prophecy you know, doesn't happen. Um, but he's going to give it a second shot now, saying, well, you're not fair. If I can touch him, then, uh, then he'll curse you. So the Lord said, behold, he's in your power, only spare his life. And again, now on the second time through, God still is giving permission. God still is setting the boundaries. He's just pushing that boundary slightly back a little bit. Okay? And that's a good thing. God knows how to push our limits uh, beyond what we know we can bear. We don't think we can bear, but he knows we can bear. And so in his wisdom, he draws that line precisely where it needs to be. And so now he goes out and he strikes Job physically with sore boils from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. Still keeps his wife alive, I noticed, okay, here in uh, chapter 2. And she, she's going to uh, curse him, Mrs. Job there in verse 9. Anyway, this is, uh, I think it's a tremendous pattern, and reading from the agonology notes, we should draw comfort from this hedge of protection. We should thank the Father for this hedge and ask Him to maintain that hedge and uh, thank Him for the, the guardian angels, thank Him for all the grace that He hedges us about. And when He allows something to slip through that hedge, thank Him for that too. Because whatever it is that hits us is certainly not as hard as it could have been. And to whatever extent that he permits it, um, we're going we're gonna to endure, and we can be thankful for that. There's other uh, scriptures as well, Psalm 34, 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. We have the promise of angelic protection, Psalm 91, verses 11 through 16, it's a verse that speaks about guardian angels. Interestingly enough, this is the passage that Satan perverted when he was tempting Jesus that he uh, misquoted this text in order to tempt Jesus. And uh, so, curiously enough, uh, when, when Satan is tempting Jesus there in Matthew, he leaves out this little part about stomping on snakes. <laughs> you know, uh, about you will uh, tread upon the lion and the cobra. 
the young lion and the serpent you will trample down. You know, Satan didn't want to mention those verses as he's uh, tempting Jesus here about, you know, throw yourself off this uh, high place and, and his angels will catch you kind of a thing. All right, so having said this, the babe needs to understand that the father who protects him calls for him to grow up and become an active participant in the struggle. That we're not going to stay toddlers forever, and it's wrong to, to attempt that. And Proverbs talks about the prolonged uh, uh, naive that wants to stay simple when he's supposed to be growing up. So we should become an active participant in the struggle. You know, by this time, you ought to be teachers. Hebrews 5.12, it's, it's a rebuke. It says, why aren't you growing up more than you are? Uh, Hebrews 10.32, remember the former days, and uh, we're supposed to grow up. It is a good fight that we must fight. In fact, we're to agonize the good agon. We're to fight the good fight. This is the race that's set before us the moment of our salvation. Run with endurance, the race that's set before you. Hebrews 12.1. All right. Any questions on that? Am I making sense? Does this make sense? Have you had teaching like this before? I think it's vital that we recognize this. All right. We have three simultaneous fronts. Who wants to fight a a three-front war? You know? Uh, The Pentagon used to have a two-war strategy. That uh, from you know World War II and the, what we learned there, that if we have to fight a major war in Europe, if we have to fight a major war in Asia, we want to have the capacity to engage in, in two theaters of operation. We don't have that anymore. Okay, that's diminished. That's gone. That's no longer a, that's no longer a, a, a facet of, of the Pentagon's military doctrine. Well, the believers now we have three fronts: we have the world, we have the flesh, and we have the devil. And Scripture speaks of all three, the cosmos, the sarks, and the diabolos, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so recognizing how these uh, uh, attacks come and with the nature of them, we shouldn't be ignorant. We should have our eyes open. The neat thing is Scripture lays it all out there. It's as plain as, as the nose on your face if you, if you look for it, um, as far as that goes. We're in the world, but no longer of the world. You know what a hostile place this is. And as we train up our children to step into their own generational accountability, they better be aware of this. They better be fully aware that when, you know, when they get into the workplace or they get off to college or wherever they get, that they're going to be surrounded by a worldview that's going to tear them to shreds if they're not equipped to deal with it. Because they're going to be mocked, they're going to be ridiculed, they're going to be led astray. We need to, we need to equip them to deal with that. So, um, John chapter 17 that addresses this. We're in the world, but not of the world. Verse 6, verse 11, 14, 16. I've given them your word. There we go. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And so we've got to be sanctified in truth. That's That's the aspect of it right there. Uh, you know, parents can't follow them around all their lives, and they gotta they gotta be equipped with the truth of the Word of God. That's what's going to sustain them, sanctify them in the truth. Thy Word is truth. All right, that's the world system. Then there's the flesh, and goodness, I tell you, we've been what we've been doing for 
three months now in, in Galatians 5 and Galatians 6, talking about the deeds of the flesh, which are evident in the fruit of the Spirit that, that we're to bear. And if we walk by means of the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. I think it's important as we teach our young people this, or any brand new believer this, that the world has its philosophy and its outlook and its system and its and on all of that. And, uh, and, and so you want to be cautious about your um, une- being unequally yoked or your, your dangerous uh, uh, friendships and things that can derail you. You want to have the right friends and the and supportive friends. Um, but as you're observing those that are on your side and those that are not on your side, ideally, obviously, uh, you've got a body of believers in a local church that are on your side. You've got a pastor that's on your side. Uh, those that are that are praying for you, that love you, that that support the the word of God as as we understand it. But then you have those that are not on your side, and they're going to tear you down, and that includes your own flesh. <laughs> okay, you got to know that your own flesh, the sin nature inside each one of us, it's not on our side. It is a no good thing. It has fallen, it is corrupt, it is the lust of the flesh from Adam. We've inherited it as a part of our fallen nature in Adam, and it is not on your side. And so, um, and that's the worst part, is because you take your body everywhere you go. (laughs) You're bringing your worst enemy with you everywhere you go. But you're also bringing, of course, if you're a believer, that permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So we have resources available to us. Romans 6.19, I love this. Um, we have the expectation here in Romans 6 that we make the choice of who we serve. Um, and, and again, it's a presentation. And it is neat to see this because it's, it's just like we had in Job. It's just like the angels are presenting themselves before the Lord. We have a presentation daily. And who are we presenting ourselves to? God or our flesh? So I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. Just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. You know, choose you this day whom you will serve. You're going to serve the flesh? You're going to serve God the Holy Spirit? You're going to serve righteousness? Okay? And think about it. Think of those old uh, movies. Think of swashbucklers that I, I like to watch. Any movie that has dragons and swords and people dying, that's, that's a cool movie right there, okay? And so, um, but think about it. Think about the knight who drops to a knee and he bows his head and King Arthur takes, you know, out the, the sword and, you know, he dubs him Sir Galahad or what have you. And, and so that's the imagery here. You're on a knee, your head is bowed, you are presented for duty, presented for service. And pathetically, we, we, we surrender to our own sin nature. We bow the knee and we tell our sin nature, oh, I love you and I want to serve you and I don't ever want to go out from you ever again. Even though, even though God has delivered us from that slave market of sin when we got saved. And yet we end up like an Old Testament slave running back to a former slave master and saying, oh, no, 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 I don't ever want to be free from you. Here, pierce my ear with the, with the awl and put a ring in my ear and I want to be your permanent slave forever and ever. We just go running back to our sin nature even though we've been redeemed from that slave market of sin when we became a believer in Jesus Christ. So we have this here. And, and, and it's, it's a beautiful expression. It's, it's up to us as to uh, what we would serve and who we serve. Uh, as you notice this, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, this, this ought to be a reality. Earlier in the chapter it talks about this as well. 
It says in verse 11, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's an order. Do you see that there in verse 11? That's an order. And we should consider it. We're commanded to think this way. Isn't that beautiful? We, are, we control how we think. We control how we evaluate certain things. Considerations are entirely our choice for how we evaluate and how we estimate and how we consider. <laughs> this is, it's, a, it's the beautiful privilege we have as human beings in the image of God. And, and the mental attitude that we choose to value things as, as high value, that's worship, that's glory, or we value something as no value, that's disglory. That's, that's to, and we either glorify or we don't glorify. It's, it's an expression of what, how we value certain things. Okay? So consider yourselves. What do you consider yourself to be? You know, do you consider yourself to be uh, a good singer? Well, in the shower, maybe. <laughs> the acoustics are better. Uh, but, you know, I, I prefer when my song leader's not camping for the weekend, okay? Um, do you consider yourself, uh, you know, there are, there are certain considerations. I've known, you know, men that consider themselves to be God's gift to women, you know? Women didn't share that consideration, but they did, okay? So some considerations are, are totally inaccurate. But here's a consideration. Consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, and guess what? It is absolutely positionally true. You can consider yourself that because that's the reality when you're saved. The thing is, is, is we, we don't always think the way that, that, that reality presents itself there. So do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its laws. Don't do it. If sin reigns, it's only because you let it. That is a statement of fact right there in that, ver- in that verse 12. Do not let sin reign. If it reigns, it's because you let it. And you were told not to. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Why do you keep bowing the knee to your sin nature every morning, every every afternoon, every evening, whatever frequency of sin happens to be? Quit doing that. Bow the knee to the Holy Spirit and say, here I am. I'm presenting as a living sacrifice, day by day, moment by moment. So that's the world, that's the flesh, and then there's the devil. Our command to the devil is one of resistance. 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9. You know, uh, as far as throwing him down and defeating him and all of that, um, there's no need for that. There's no calling for that. There's a lot of sensational things that are written, mostly in in Pentecostal circles. Um, That's not what the Scripture defends, all right? There is the aspect of resistance, and when we resist, he flees, and so there you go. You don't have to deal with it after that, because he's, he's headed for the hills. Um, but understand, he is a defeated foe. Tactically, he was defeated on the cross, the, the strategic victory on the cross. There will be a, an ultimate victory at Armageddon, and so in the meantime, don't, don't sweat it. Just keep your armor on, stay on the alert, resist him, and he will flee. There's a reason why he prowls about like a roaring lion. Don't, uh, don't allow him to scare you. So be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Think clearly and, and have your eyes open. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Okay, And the best thing you to remember about that roaring lion 
is the roaring lion is not the one you ought to be scared of. The roaring lion is 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 not the one. It's the non-roaring lion you got to be scared of. That's the again. Watch the Nature Channel. Watch the and get on cable television and watch how this works. The roaring lions over here scaring the 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 wildebeest or the you know the animals, and they go taking off this direction because he's roaring over here. And and who's over on this direction? All the non-roaring lions, probably the lionesses. All right. And, and they're they're crouched low. They're they're hiding in the tall grass. And as soon as these uh, you know clueless little uh, food animals start running their direction, they're 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 all over it. See, that's what it's about. The devil wants you to react in fear. <laughs> and uh, you know these things ought to be pretty clear from scripture and from experience. You know, if you think back to the last. Uh, just think back to the last uh, five decisions you made on a, on the basis of fear. Were they good decisions? <laughs> you know, no. If you're making a decision on the, on the, and it's based on fear, it should be based on faith. Or decisions based on lust, or based on worry, or based on any mental attitude sin. If it's not based on faith, it's not a right decision. Anything not of faith is sin. So um, be sober, be on the alert. He's prowling, he's roaring, don't sweat it. Resist him, firm in your faith. You're suited up in armor, right? You're, you've got the, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit. You have, you have every component of your armor in place, the Ephesians 6 armor. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. So whatever it is, whatever he's been permitted to do, to attack my children, to attack my wife, to attack my health, to attack my money, to attack my church, whatever it is he's he's been permitted to attack, just stay armored up, stay sober, don't panic, hold your place on the wall. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Understand there's a process involved whereby the victorious outcome on the other side is right there. Assuming, of course, you don't bail. You don't throw throw down your armor and run for the hills or, or panic in any other application. So put on the armor and stand firm. Ephesians 6, verses 12 through 17. And you'll note, as you put on your armor, you're not alone in this. And we've got brothers and sisters also in their armor. And we're, we're up on a wall and we're in prayer. And uh, we have the opportunity to stand firm and to uh, intercede for one another. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. With this in view, be on the alert with perseverance and petition for all the saints. So we get to become very uh, interactive in our prayer life, one for another. Again, some may object to this. I've, I've had folks criticize. They don't think agonology belongs in basic doctrinal studies. They say, well, it's really more advanced teaching. A babe doesn't need to know that. I think just the opposite. The babe needs to know this, and they need to know it on day one as, as quickly as possible. Uh, otherwise, if they come under such attack and then they don't grow, how are you going to get them to the uh, adolescent stage or the mature stage? I think I don't have it in these notes here, but think about 
the uh, admonitions there in 1 John to the young men, to the little children, to the, to the grown men. And there's conflict in all three age levels that are described there in 1 John chapter 2. The, the young man has conflict. All right. And since the essence of this is humility anyway, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. You know, what better time to teach that than in uh, childhood when they have a natural humility that comes in childhood and they've not yet reached the uh, adolescent stage where you've got some uh, humility testing, shall we call it. You have some, uh, some arrogance uh, failures in, through the adolescent growth spurts of, uh, of the Christian growth. So I think the childhood stage is, is ideal for teaching the humility principles of the angelic conflict. Jesus, uh, I think, emphasized this, Matthew 18. Unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So whoever humbles himself as this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We've got humility lessons. And, and he used children as his, as his uh, visual aid in, in teaching this doctrine. Are there deeper and more advanced areas of teaching? Of course. They relate to all of this. I mean, man, we can get into some things in Satanology. We can talk about the five I wills. We can go into the defilement of the temples in, in Ezekiel 28. We can learn all about the, the, uh, the warfare that took place before the fall of, uh, or after the fall of Satan. Why it is that this world was left tohu wabohu in the, in the formless and void chaos of, of judgment. We can go into all of these things, and we should. That's all in the more intermediate and advanced uh, uh, studies. But nevertheless, on a basic level, I think uh, a brand new believer can uh, learn how to cast all their cares on him because he cares for you, right? Just a faith rest it. Learn faith rest and apply the truth and, and there you have it. All right, any questions on that? I want to open it up for questions if, if there was anything that was unfuzzy or, or fuzzy or anything that was unclear. Okay. And if you don't mind, hold just a moment. We're going to get a microphone to you. And this is this is for the benefit of me being able to hear and okay. also for anyone listening to the recording. Okay. Um, I'm not sure if I'm going to phrase this properly, but I've heard a lot of things uh, in the church world about like binding and rebuking and, and all of that stuff, and it's never really sat quite right with me. It's, it's mm-hmm. more an issue of, of resisting and enduring, right, in the truth rather than... Like our our conflict with the enemy isn't a matter of calling him out or putting him in a place, his place so much as it is reminding us of God's faithfulness and the inerrancy of God's word, right? Yes, sir. Like knowing the truth and standing on that rather than... And so it's a matter of, I guess, enduring the trial without fleeing from God, like assuming that he's abandoned you, correct? Yes, exactly. That's exactly right. Okay. Yeah. Okay, because there's a lot of just really odd things going on with like... Bearing stakes in the oh, ground, claiming yeah. cities, and all of that stuff, and and you know they all come from uh, the charismatic branches of, of, of Christendom. They okay. come from Pentecostals, Assembly of God, and and, and more of the the charismatic side of things. Um, they, I think, they abuse particular scriptures, such as "Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven; whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven." That have nothing to do with what they try to 
apply it to. They also call out by name a, a, a demon of lust or a demon of fear. Yeah. Or a de- you know, and none of that has any any sanction in in Old Testament or New Testament. And and, and much of it comes out of uh, Roman Catholic legends, and a lot of it comes out of medieval uh, Catholic practices and things. Okay. Uh, so I pre- appreciate that question. And if I was to explain it to someone else, I would actually go, there's a, there's, a, there's a passage in the book of Acts, I love it, because there's some Jewish exorcists and there's some other folks that they encounter, and they've got some kind of a scheme going on. And, and the demon, it, I, I kind of laugh when I read the text, because they, they get torn to shreds. They get beat up pretty ferociously. And the demons say, you know, I, I know Jesus and I've heard of Paul, but who do you think you are kind of a thing. And it's, to me, that is a vivid illustration of what the, the sad effects are of what you're talking about, where these people try to, try to do these things. And, and we're not called to that. Appreciate that. Uh, question over here, Mr. Dowd. Well, would the uh, description of the armor of God apply in this, to the same question? That is, uh, we see there that the shield of faith is the main defensive weapon, mm-hmm. uh, prevent, uh, defending against the fiery darts of the wicked one. So that's mm-hmm. your defense against Satan and the, and the chief offensive weapon is the word of god the sword of the spirit mm-hmm. the word of god which as the the previous questioner suggested was uh the answer to the to right. to the whole question is using the word of god accurately specifically yes and more than just the logos in general it's not just you know get doctrine and and, and grow up it it's not just it's not the logos to theu it's the rhema and I think very specifically there that the sword of the spirit in Ephesians 6, the sword of the spirit is the rhema to theu. And the, the rhema is different from the logos in the sense that it's the word and it's specifically the utterance. It's the, it's the particular passage. And so I think it's, it's vital when Jesus answered every temptation, he had a specific scripture. Uh, so on the food temptation, he said, Man shall not live by bread alone. And on the worship uh, temptation, he had, uh, you know, worship the Lord God and serve him only. He had specific scriptures that address specific, specific things. And so the more scripture you have memorized, the more the word of God you can bring to bear. Um, You know, you want to be able to address a particular verse to a particular temptation or a particular attack. And, and which requires you have a, a broad exposure to the Word of God. You have you have facility in in so many different applications because you know if 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 the only verse you have memorized is Jesus wept, that may you may struggle then to apply that to certain testings. You know, so you may want to have more than than just that verse. You know, you might want to have some some other helpful things like Thou shall not steal or you know, uh, whatever the temptation happens to be. You got to have a a rhema that addresses that particular attack. That's right. So that you can kill that, that, uh, that conflict right then and there. Thank you for that. Excellent. I think that's vital. So um, if you wanted to, uh, let me pull that up. Which is the Word of God. Ignore that. I'm getting a Scrabble alert and you don't 
I want to see that. Rhema. I thought I'd turn those off. I didn't want those to pop up and be a distraction while I was in the pulpit. Um, no, it came up in my window system tray. I, yeah, I apologize. All right, so there's Rhema. Number 4487, if you want a Strong's number on Rhema. R-H-E-M-A, Rhema. Number 4487. And it's not a Logos, it's the Rhema. And, and the distinction there between Rhema and Logos, I think, is, is uh, it's a good study and it's useful to, uh, to work your way through. All right. Um, we could move on into Bullology, but I think this is a good stopping point. Um, between now and next week, if you don't have a Plan of God reader yet, uh, I think we have some out there in the hallway, right? Let's uh, make sure we get some Plan of God readers handed out. Um, Bullology speaks of bule, speaks of the... If thelema is the will, bule is the plan, okay? Uh, although a lot of times they get used interchangeably and, and different authors, I think, confuse the issues. Um, but the plan of God, what is the plan of God? From Alpha to Omega, what's the, what's the objective? What are we trying to do here? Well, what's God trying to do here? related to this. So it's a study on God the Father's plan, His grace, eternal plan of the ages for the maximum glorification of Jesus Christ and uh, His plan from Alpha to Omega. And right now we're in the church, uh, but the church could end tonight. The church could end right now. We're waiting for a trumpet. The church could be done at this very moment. We want to be aware of that. We want to identify that for what it is. All right. So we'll come back next week and we're going we're gonna to deal with the plan of God. And I see Doug's got some readers available. So we'll hand those out as we, as we dismiss. Let me close with prayer. Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for this class. I thank you for uh, our visitors tonight, Father, and all your grace. Uh, Father, your word is so powerful and it's so sufficient. Uh, I rejoice, Father, that it's alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. So, Father, humble us to receive this word implanted. Equip us to live this truth out day by day and moment by moment. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.